0: Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
1: You're listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sari Kamen. Today in studio, well, actually on the line, my guest is Simran Seti. She's a journalist and an educator focused on food, sustainability, and social change. She was named the environmental messenger by Vanity Fair and designated one of the top eight women saving the planet by Marie Claire. Simran is the creator of The Slow Melt, the first podcast on the continuum of chocolate, winner of the 2017 Sever Award for Best Food Podcast. She is also the author of Bread, Wine, Chocolate, The Slow Loss of Foods We Love. The book tells the story of changes in food and agriculture through bread, wine, chocolate, coffee, and beer, and was named one of the best food books of 2016 by Smithsonian. Wow. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Simron. Simran.
2: Thank you. Thank that you is, for that superlative introduction. Well, <laughs>
1: those are just facts. I mean, that's just unbelievable. And it, and it goes on and on and on. I mean, it's just, you're just really one of the most impressive people that I've ever had the pleasure of speaking with, I, that I'm now speaking with you. So I'm very happy to have you here, having long admired your work and your podcast and your writing. So it's really just an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Shucks, Mama, thank you, <laughs> and you're so nice. <laughs> and I have, and you told me that you just got back to the United States from Italy. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. what what were you doing there, there? I am
2: definitely living my best life, and you can be oh. very jealous of
1: that. Yeah, <laughs> that is a good place to live one's best life. Yeah, yeah. they have it figured out, don't they?
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: Did you drink a lot of wine and eat a lot of? Bread and chocolate.
2: <laughs> you know it. And yeah. Beer and coffee. I do all, I live my book every day. Um, I actually was in uh, Torino for the International Food Journalism Conference. So it was a perfect excuse to share the gospel on chocolate and climate change and kind of how journalists report on the issue and also um, indulge in a lot of good wine and many, uh, cappuccini and, mm. uh, you know, chocolate
1: too. So, yeah. yeah. It's a good, I I healthy balance. <laughs> good. Um, well, we're going to get to your book that covers more of all of those delicious things you just mentioned, but I want to just kind of back up and hear a little bit a bit about your, your upbringing, which is interesting. I mean, you're, you're Indian, but you were born in Germany. So, yeah. yeah so you're, so you're the, child of Indian immigrants, I'm assuming. Um, what was your upbringing like? What was it like to be Indian in Germany? How long did you live there for?
2: Not long. Mm -hmm. Um, so my dad got his PhD in Germany and my mom joined him there. Uh, she was finishing up her master's and then came over from India and, and I was born there. And then, um, you know, shortly thereafter, The National Institutes of Health asked my dad to come to the United States. Uh, He was a clinical pharmacologist working uh, in cancer research, so looking at at particular uh, drugs that you know that might be able to combat cancer. So, um, so I was just a baby when we came to the U.S., and um, and it was so interesting because I asked my mom quite a bit about that experience and you know what she'd seen of the United States at that point. This is 1971; was like on television and. um, Um, And, you know, they got here toward the end of the day, and it was dark, and it wasn't as shiny and glittery as, you know, television portrayed it, so it was a real kind of adjustment. Um, And then from there, you know, spent a couple years in the D.C. area, and then uh, mainly grew up in North Carolina, so I've had this sort of dual experience of of being Indian and having a whole life there. You know, I'd go back and visit my family in India. um, Not really time in Germany until I was an adult. And then also growing up in the South. So having these two really different experiences, um, you know, come together and, and, and little me.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and what was, what was the food like in your household growing up? Cause you lived, like you said, in the South, but I imagine that, you know, there was some more traditional Indian food that your mom prepared as well.
2: Yeah, exactly. So, um, so it was a little bit of both. So, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I think it's a typical immigrant kid experience where your mom is making you or your dad, whomever, somebody is making like this gorgeous food, you know, handmade, wonderful deliciousness. And what you really want is the like, shitty tater tots and pizza from the school cafeteria. You know?
1: Yeah, <laughs> like, that's like such like, a running I theme. Eat? Why
2: can't I have a bologna sandwich like everyone else? Like, right. Why do I have to have delicious curries and dolls? And, you know, so I kind of hid it away. I'm mm-hmm. sure I threw away a lot of my lunches. Um, And and only as I got older did I realize how lucky I was. And And I really do have that dual experience. Like I'm just as comfortable with You know, grits and mac and cheese and barbecue, North Carolina barbecue is the superior barbecue for (laughs) anyone who has any question about that. But then also, you know, all my northern Indian Punjabi foods, um, straight up, you know, rajma, uh, bartha, like all the kind of traditional things, I'm a real sucker
1: and stickler
2: for so yeah (laughs) so i I, live these things simultaneously Mm -hmm.
1: yeah i've heard that from several guests on this show who had just the exact same experience of um Mm -hmm. being sort of ashamed of the food that they were served in their home and just wanting to fit in and like especially if something you know showed up in their lunchbox or their lunch bag trying to hide it and you said that actually (gasps) in your book that um you know you said for every immigrant that food is a source of solace and shame um anything that would allow you you were just you craved anything that would allow you to fit in rather than stand out yeah. so yeah it's
2: true you know i mean i i was like a a brown girl in the bible belt and we got here to north carolina and one of the first questions i was asked was you know is christ your savior and i didn't even really well, know what that meant you know yeah. and i said no and then you know this little Co-headed kid said, "Well, then you're going to hail, you know." And it's like, oh "What? Where am I?" <laughs> you know. And so, um, and for the record, I'm Hindu, you know. And so, so it's like, like this, this kind of experience where what you want to do is is not stand out, yet everything about you kind of points to this otherness. You know, it was literally in in that day checking a box. I wasn't black. I wasn't white. I was other, and always trying to fit in. And and you know, one of the biggest ways that we kind of come together, as you well know, of course, is through food. And so it was this, um, you know, even though my friends would come over and they would love the food that my mom would make and they'd want to come over again and again, for me, I just wanted to be as straight-up American as I could be. And, you know, that meant I got colored contacts. That meant I got a perm. You know, that meant I did all this weird stuff. But the thing that seemed easiest to kind of, you know, change, as it were, was my diet. Um, Yeah. but, But it really as I got older, again, it became this extraordinary—I mean, badge of honor is too extreme—but this this real sense of, of pride that I had this much longer story and history, and it you know it connected me all the way back to India and my grandmother, and and you know that I it, that is actually now one of the things I'm I'm most uh, that I cherish the most, you know. So it's it's almost like I look back at my younger self and and wonder like how why were you so embarrassed, you know? Like I wish I could go back and. And kind of remedy that um, from that
1: early age. Well, I think just, like, being a young person is just difficult anyway. Like, we're all so insecure and, like, uncomfortable with ourselves. And then having this, like, extra thing that made you feel like you stood out. I mean, I'm sure everyone feels like they stand out to a certain extent. But you, like, yours was so, you know, like, on the surface and obvious, I mean, it Not probably well was like, said. well, it's probably yeah. just like humiliating having friends come over. And even though they appreciated the food, it probably felt more like, like, um, like they were like fetishizing the other, you know, like just sort mm-hmm. of like exasperating like something that, you know, you were already really like trying to push down beneath this, the surface a little bit.
2: Yeah, um, that's very interesting. And, you know, I mean, I stood out from everything, my skin color, my name, like there was no hiding. Yeah. yeah. And so maybe it was also this idea of like, I could take refuge in food, but... The thing that I actually, I have to say, I really quite loved the friends of mine who were, like, obsessed with my mom's food because it was validation that I needed. Whatever their motive was, I think it was, like, it, my mom is, like, an amazing yeah. cook. <laughs> so there's that, and then there was just that level of, like, I have never had anything like this in my life, and it's blowing my mind, you mm-hmm. know, and it it made me feel a little bit excited. And, and you know, I, w- I wouldn't go so far as to say proud, but in that moment, there was just, like, a little bit of recognition that I had that all of my otherness was, was quite special and, and interesting.
1: Yeah. Um, it's nice to like grow into that. And like, that's, I think that's just part of like becoming an adult being like, Oh yeah, I am who I am. And like, it's actually pretty awesome. Um, yeah, but you, exactly. you moved to India when you were <laughs> 26. So what, what took you there?
2: Um, so I actually worked for a, MTV news for quite a while Uh-oh. and uh, first in New York uh, when I was still in college and then after college uh, they kind of lured me back they were doing a, a special on the rise of neo-nazism and popular music and then from there I was asked to actually be on air for MTV Asia and then I ended up running the news department for MTV India so so I had gone to India my whole life you know seeing my family but when you and again, I think not an uncommon experience. Like when you go back to the homeland, you're not seeing the sights. You're like sitting with your family yeah. endlessly, you know, <laughs> yeah. and just doing nothing. And so, I got to rediscover India. And I, this was also in in Mumbai, so a totally different part from where I was, um, you know, where my family's from. But that's kind of what brought me back and allowed me to rediscover and reconnect with kind of my Indian-ness in a whole new way and, you know, different kinds of cuisine. Like I didn't know that particular Maharashtran cuisine at all or, or sort of Parsi cuisine or any of the cuisines that are kind of more popular in that area go in, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it was a really exciting time for me to kind of discover myself and then discover this, like what I thought I knew of Indian food was just the tip of the iceberg.
1: <laughs> yeah, am sure. Um, <laughs> so kind of like to the point of what we were just saying, you know, you I read that uh you wrote when you got to India, you know, you were so excited to like experience all this food that you didn't get when you were growing up, but then it sort of transitioned and you were craving what was familiar to your like American sensibilities, which was <laughs> you know, whatever, like salad and lasagna, and then you were like secretly happy when a McDonald's opened up. <laughs> I
2: know. Which I think I is so, so funny. I can't even, because The thing was, it is that, right? There's always this experience of longing for this other thing. Um,
1: Yeah, I mean, you probably couldn't even have predicted that. You would have felt that way.
2: Yeah, (laughs) I definitely, (laughs) I mean, because the thing was with all these other, and it's definitely different now, but back then it was sort of like, no matter what food you were getting, it was interpreted through the lens of India, right? So right. the spices would be like Italian food would be a little bit off. Yeah, or Chinese, yeah. you know, there's a whole tradition of like Indo-Chinese cuisine. And so I just wanted like a straight up, pure, unadulterated French fry, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I got it. I mean, there was the first McDonald's that opened in that area, opened in my neighborhood, which is called, was is Bandra. So, so, um, you know, so my ex and I would like get in the car. We'd like wait in line sometimes when it first opened. I think, or you know, it just it it became something that I do periodically just to kind of reconnect to that that part of myself, um, which is a little bit embarrassing because I don't want to think like the the most American part of myself is like you know a Happy Meal, <laughs> but it was um, it was definitely a nice a nice way to ground. Yeah,
1: it's, I mean, I guess that's that's a very pure part of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just... I
2: mean, you know, I always sort of freak out when I, I think about all the like the people who go, you know, away after they graduate from college here in the U.S. and then they go to like wherever they go and they go to the McDonald's. And it's like, oh my gosh, are you kidding? Like, why would you go there? But, I mean, after a certain point of having so much Indian food and also there's not a lot of tradition of like fresh salads and stuff. Right. Most vegetables are cooked. I was like, I just really want a big salad and like, you know, some French fries and a filet of fish. You
1: know what I mean? Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, it's yeah, just re- so it's so, so interesting, yeah. Because
1: you write so much about like how food is connected to memory, and like loss of like l- like the sense of losing oneself as foods, um, you know, become more threatened. And like you write about agricultural biodiversity and it's just it's just kind of like amusing to think about you eating french fries in india
2: you know it's all like tied up together and Mm -hmm. confusing because that loss of culture that erosion so look this is you know a couple of decades ago so i want to sort of say like i have really evolved i'm not that same woman not that i was a huge like fast food eater back then but now it's it's really i mean i can't tell you the last time i was in a mcdonald's but and no judgment for anybody who does that sort of thing, but for me, it's really been like that homogenization is something that I don't really want to embrace anymore, and that would include even my job. You know, I worked at MTV, like popular culture is one of the biggest exports the United States offers the world, and so I was also a part of that cultural shift, which I'm not too happy about either. So, so I think it's really like understanding some of this stuff on a deeper level, and we could say... Yeah, but, you know, McDonald's also had the veggie burger. I mean, there was an interpretation of McDonald's that was uniquely Indian. And MTV India was very different than MTV in the United States. And both these things are true. But, you know, at its core, it's about kind of taking something else away and making, like, the world a little bit similar, right? So um, I really... In, in, you know, the last like 15, 20 years, what I really want to celebrate is difference again. I don't, I don't want us to be this giant melting pot where everything kind of blends in and melts together. I want us to be, you know, like there's a sociological description around this, but it's more like a goulash or a stew, right? Mm -hmm. Where, it's like you come together, but all the pieces are still discrete. So you've got your chunks of meat and potatoes and carrots and what have you, and the integrity around those things. So it's like, can I be an American and still have my Indianness? You know, can we celebrate different cuisines and not feel like we have to make, you know, something like uh, American fast food or now processed foods, you know, convenience foods, the baseline. Um, And that's what I'm really curious to explore because that ties directly into, you know, it's not only a cultural loss, but it's this kind of agricultural loss of biodiversity. And these things aren't separate, you know, they're happening in tandem.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you also pointed out that that was like the first McDonald's, you know, that you had seen. It wasn't like McDonald's is so pervasive in India now. Like it was an actual novelty when that McDonald's opened up too. So maybe you would have felt differently, you know, maybe you wouldn't have felt, um, like, that french fry was probably, like, a little exotic in that moment to you because it was different than everything <laughs> exactly. you'd been eating. It was before, you yeah. know, like, this globalization, like, the Airbnbification of the world where mm-hmm. everyone can go mm-hmm. everywhere and it's so easy. And, you know, one of the byproducts of that is, like, everything is sort of becoming the same.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it's shocking to me that, like, it, it, it does take on this kind of local... Uh, I don't know if patina is really the right word, but in France, for example, you know, it's like it's McDo and, and there are I would think, more McDonald's per capita in France than anywhere else in the world. And, and it, it's a sense of ownership or like KFC or Pizza Hut, you know, and I just think to myself, like, wow, we've exported, this is what we exported. Like yeah. <laughs> Okay. You know, like, I think I can, we've got some other stuff we could offer that's even cooler guys, you know? So, Yeah. Um, <laughs> So there's also that part of it that I find really interesting—that it it does kind of become part of the fabric of these other places, you know, and and uniquely theirs as well.
1: Yeah. Um, well, let's get to your book because that's what we're really here okay. for. So, mm. uh, so bread, wine, chocolate, coffee, and beer—how did you hone mm-hmm. in on those particular foods to research?
2: Yeah, so back up and say the book is about the loss of agricultural Mm -hmm. biodiversity, which is the loss of diversity in kind of everything that makes food and drink possible, right? So from a loss of diversity in the soil, to seeds, to pollinators, to plants, to animals, and aquatic life. So initially the book was going to be like wheat, rice, potatoes, (laughs) the slow loss of foods we love, (laughs) you know, like Mm -hmm. really staple foods, you know, the things that kind of anchor the global diet, what have you. And I was sitting in my, like, tiny postcard-sized apartment in Rome, and I was struggling with the corn chapter. And I thought to myself, my God, Michael Pollan has written the best chapter on corn in The Omnivore's Dilemma. Like, how am I going to top that, A? (laughs) And B, I'm not even a corn person. Like,
1: (laughs) I'm
2: not really going to miss corn. It's not, you know, whatever. And so... Corn's no chocolate. Back to the U.S. Sorry?
1: Corn's no chocolate.
2: Yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) Corn's no chocolate. (laughs) Unless maybe, I don't know, maybe in Mexico, maize is chocolate and chocolate is maize. I don't know. But, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm struggling. And then I, so I do all my research in Italy and I come back to the United States and I, um, I had like gone to the farmer's market with my sister in Oakland, California, and we ran into her neighbor and her neighbor's husband is a chocolate maker. And so I ended up visiting him. I didn't realize until that encounter that he was also a botanist. So it was going to be this really interesting conversation. And I always thought, like, okay, I'm going to write this book on, you know, wheat and rice and throw a little wine in for color and a little (laughs) sprinkle of chocolate on top. It'll be a sidebar. But what happened when I went and met that chocolate maker was I realized how integral chocolate was to my life like how that was something i actually missed and the reason i missed it in that particular moment was because i had like you know consumed so much wine in italy i decided to go on a little mini cleanse and so i wasn't like not having any sugar or booze and and so in these days when i met this guy brad i wasn't eating chocolate and i and so i felt acutely that loss and i realized I needed to change this book and talk about things that I really loved so I could convey that emotion. And maybe they weren't like dietary staples, but they were anchors in my life. You know, coffee is what wakes me up every day. Chocolate I eat every single day of my life. You know, wine is something we celebrate with. Beer, beer actually wasn't my thing, but it is so many people's things. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to work with a drink that I knew people loved that I wanted to learn to love, you know, and sort of share that experience. And then... You know, bread is kind of, it's a dietary staple, it's a spiritual staple, it's like something that we love, you know, so I just thought um, that was another great one to talk about, and it, there was a much longer list at a certain point, but it kind of got winnowed down to these foods uh, and drinks.
1: Yeah. Um, we're going to take a quick break for the commercial, but we're going to come back and talk more about how you kind of navigated the, the journeys of these foods.
0: Okay. Thanks, great. Simon.
1: You're listening to Food Without Borders on heritageradionetwork.org. I am your host, Sari Kamen, and I'm on the line with Simran Safi. She is the author of Bread, Wine, Chocolate The Slow Loss of Foods We Love. And we have just begun uh, kind of digging into the book, and Simran, you're just starting to tell us um, about bread, wine, chocolate, coffee, and beer, which are the the particular foods that you focus on in your book. Um, how did you, I mean, you spent, what, five years working on this book? And <laughs> yes, six continents, is that they right? They were like
2: dog years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Yep. Six continents, uh, five years. Uh, <sighs> it was a pretty, it was a life-changing experience. Yeah. It really was. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, so how do you, how can you even like sum up what that was like for you? I mean, like, where did you go? How did you find the people you interviewed? How did you figure out where you were going to travel to next?
2: Yeah, it was crazy scary <laughs> because I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I...
1: And first, like, do you like quit your job and like sold it. your house and everything to like just go do this?
2: Yeah, I did. That's I, so cool. <laughs> I,
0: so,
2: like when I had been working for, when I was working for NBC News, the publisher approached me and said, hey, do you want to write a book? I was like, well, I don't write books. I report the news on television. You know, like, I didn't, you know, and they, anyhow, they wanted me to write a book, and I sold a different book, and then I had this weighing over me, which is a strange phenomenon. As I moved through careers, as I became a a journalism professor, as I got tenure, you know, and I just have this book that's weighing on me, and I want to write, but I don't yet know how. Hmm. And over the course of time, I... I realized what I wanted to write about. The book evolved a number of times, but when I was in Italy on a separate trip, I had met a, a researcher at a place called Bioversity International, and they're the only NGO that really focuses on agricultural biodiversity um, and conservation, like, on on farms and in the wild. Um, so they're really important in terms of kind of conservation. And the scientist, you know, I was, I was looking at genetic engineering and, and seeds, and he said, you know, GMOs are really a big deal in your country, but in Italy, first of all, they're banned. Um, but he said, you know, what we're really concerned about is the loss of agricultural biodiversity. And I had heard about it, you know, reading books like by Gary Navin, for example, but I always thought what we were losing were these esoteric things, like a wild rice I would never encounter or some esoteric squash. And, and what this gentleman, Stefano Padulosi, helped me to understand was this was – this erosion was happening to all foods at all times and that really impacted me that i cared so much about food i taught you know almost every class i could teach i taught through the lens of food i was you know obsessed with kind of what i was eating how i was eating not in a like maybe healthful way but trying to understand it from a cultural perspective and 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 here i didn't know you know that foods were endangered and so I ended up quitting my job that I couldn't get fired from. I sold my house, I gave away my car, and I started on this journey. And I mapped it out knowing that I wanted to talk about this loss in every conceivable way. So, for example, from the soil, right? So that uh, I talk about in my wine chapter, the loss of biodiversity in soil. But I also wanted to talk about the different ways we conserve biodiversity. So there's three primary ways. There's there's ex situ conservation was this kind of external collections like a seed bank you know or the Svalbard Global Seed Vault and then there's in situ uh which is latin for in place conservation which happens in the wild and on farms so in the wild i went to the birthplace of coffee which is ethiopia um to the exact place where coffee you know was a, allegedly uh grown for the first time right so um for the for the chocolate chapter i i went to the to the area. It's a bean-shaped area, you know, between Ecuador and Peru, uh, where chocolate comes from. And I wanted to talk about conservation of cocoa uh, on farms, you know. So I had these kind of ideas of of what I wanted to share. The beer chapter talks about the loss of agricultural biodiversity in microbes. So I went to an external collection. Instead of going to a seed bank, I actually went to a, a a yeast bank
0: um,
2: where they store it's one of the biggest collections of yeast in the world in Norwich in the UK. And then I traced a yeast that they had saved all the way back to a beer at a brewery in London that was at one time one of the biggest breweries in the world. And, and, you know, they kind of, those beers fell out of favor. And so that kind of disappeared. and, And the way they brought that beer back to life, so to speak, was through this yeast. So, that's wild. Really, what I wanted to do was <laughs> make this stuff alive for people, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I thought, like, if I can go to the forest in Ethiopia and I can tell you what it's like, even if you never go there, maybe you'll feel those pangs of loss, like if I can introduce you to those farmers, you know, and, and one of the things I was really adamant about was naming everyone. So there's not a single person that I encounter in the book, whether it was the driver, you know, who drove me from point A to point B or an intern at the, the cocoa farm who doesn't get named because so often it's like farmers in fields, you know, or workers yeah. in factories. And that anonymity is the way we lose connection you know it's distance and it's it's this erasure of humanity and and like if nothing else what this book I hope did was was place people front and center you know I never expected to be like the main character but my editor kept saying like more of you and I was like what this is terrible I don't want to talk about myself but it became the way like I became the guide through kind of like the journeys of these foods and drinks and helping people, you know, maybe understand them a little bit more cuz I thought I knew everything I needed to know about coffee, you know, it's like I like cappuccinos, you know, like that's it, I'm good. And it's like you don't know anything about coffee, sister. Like there's so much to learn and and through like learning about these foods and drinks, I really have come to appreciate and love them more.
1: Yeah, and I mean, what's so fantastic about the book and like having you, you know, as sort of like the conduit making all these connections for us is that you know, I think like the average person doesn't know that we have lost so much. Like there's no sense of grief or concern or like mourning because we're not even aware that these things ever existed. It's like when you talk about in the beginning, like how there used to be, you know, however many varieties of banana, now there's one banana. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, we don't even feel sad about that because we don't like, we don't even know that that was a thing. So exactly. it's, yeah, exactly. it's just, it's so important to create this like emotional, yeah. we do
2: in the world, but we see one, right. Or yeah. you think like there's all this abundance when I was saying, I'm going to, I'm going to write a book about the loss of agricultural biodiversity. One of my friends was like, have you been to a grocery store? Like what right. are you talking about? We have more diversity than ever, but what we have is, an, is largely, you know, an illusion. It's like, so I went to the grocery store, I counted up a bunch of things, the, the, the most Surprising example for me was in dairy products. Ninety um, percent of the dairy products that we consume in the United States come from one breed of cow, right? So, like you can imagine, if that breed gets knocked out, if it if it succumbs to a disease, if something you know happens because of you know a warming planet, like that, a lot is in peril, you know, and now three-fourths of our food comes from 12 plant and five animal species. And we can grow so much more, we can raise so much more, and we can have this diversity of experience, of flavor that we're missing out on. Because what we breed animals and plants to do typically is for yield, right, to increase the yield, or for disease or pest resistance. So we're not breeding them for flavor. Like, you Mm -hmm. know, the idea is kind of like I go to the grocery store to buy things I want to eat that are delicious, you know, or the farmer's market. I'm not doing it for, like, the highest yield. But the banana, for example, that we see on store shelves was bred for stability. So, you know, shelf stability and for shipping easily. It's not not there for our nutritional benefit necessarily or for our – Um, sensorial benefit. And, and that is something I also include in the book is tasting guides and like a a breakdown of how our senses work. So, so when I say to people, hey, there's all these awesome, you know, varieties of coffee that you could be drinking. If you've only ever had, I don't know, Folgers, you're not even going to be able to discern that stuff. I mean, right. I couldn't either. I didn't know about this loss. I didn't know how to navigate these foods and drinks. You know, I understood the sense of kind of diversity and terroir and something like cheese or wine, but not in bread or, or chocolate. And And so as I discovered them, I wanted to share that information with other people and make sure that it was as democratic as possible. Like, you don't need to go to an expert. You are your own best expert, always. No one has the experience you have, no one has the physiology you have, of course, sommeliers and and cicerones and, you know, kind of experts can give guidance, but at the end of the day, like, you love what you love, and and understanding that will only enable you to find more of that stuff that you love, you Mm -hmm. know, and kind of... Appreciate diversity and expand your palate, and and you know, um, hopefully, in the process, preserve biodiversity.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so now you have a podcast called The Slow Melt, which is wonderful. So, you focus on chocolate. I mean, how how is just you know such a not that it's a small topic, but just one food. How is that like a, this huge lens to talk about all these different sustainability issues around the world? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So it's interesting because so I, you know, I talked about all these, this handful of foods and drinks, but the one that I really fell most deeply for was chocolate. And I came back and I have like a million chocolate stories I want to tell, and I'm pitching them to editors, and they all really want me to sort of talk about recipes, or they say, you know, like, this isn't the season for chocolate. I remember I pitched something in June, and I was like, what? (laughs) Like, are you, what? Why? Because it's not Valentine's Day? (laughs) Like, every day is chocolate day. Every day is chocolate day. (laughs) This is the New York Times, by the way. Wow. Um, So, you know, so I was like, look, if you guys aren't going to let me tell these stories, I'm going to do it myself. And so (laughs) I had my microphone, you know, left over from my, like, days of working at an environmental website called Tree Hugger, and I used to do segments for them for Air America Radio, and I basically, like, threw a blanket over my head and, you know, found some great people to work with who work at... Um, NPR affiliates in Los Angeles. And, um, and you know, I knew how to kind of tell a story. And so, so for me, you know, initially the challenge was, like, I can tell the story of agricultural biodiversity through bread, wine, coffee, chocolate, and beer. But really, you can tell the story of everything through a singular food. And that's what chocolate has done. And, and the reason I chose chocolate was, A, because I love it immensely, and B, <laughs> because I'm not alone in that. Mm-hmm. So if I want to talk to you about... Uh, you know, climate change Sure, I can talk to you about sea level rise, and I can, because I have actually, I, I did that on NBC. I did that in a number of outlets. But what if I can tell you about that story through something that you already love? And, you know, what if I can tell you the story of labor and economics through chocolate? And what if I can tell you the story of chemistry and flavor? And, and I want to do all of these things. So, so that's why I started the podcast, was really to sort of say, like, there are so many stories that we can talk about through food. And I think this particular lens, this thick, delicious, Mm. melty lens is the perfect one, you know? Um, and so, so yeah, so that became sort of the conduit to, to talking about everything from geography and history to, uh, to chemistry and climate change.
1: So cool. Um, well, I just have time for, for one more question. And I watched a, a TEDx talk that you gave Quite a while ago. I mean, it's yeah. maybe almost a decade ago, but it was such an interesting topic because you weren't talking about chocolate at that point. Mm-hmm. You were talking about yeah. sort of the the realization that despite how different people seem from each other, we're actually much more similar than we realize. And the the context was like you had moved to Kansas from New York and you had become friends with someone who seemed so... You know, he couldn't be more different than you. He was a hunter and he was conservative. And then you just discovered this love for local food and, um, you know, growing your own food or foraging or whatever it was. And you really found this common ground. And kind of like the thesis of your talk was that we're actually so much more similar than we're not. And I, I mean, my question just watching this, because it was it was several years ago, it was like, do you still feel like that? Like after, you know, the election and, you know, being from a red state and like, do you has has your do you do you still have that strong belief?
2: So, yeah. Um the psychology has also evolved, mm-hmm. and now there has been a lot more nuanced research on kind of the difference between the conservative, quote-unquote, conservative and liberal brains, right? So I talk about this this talk you're referencing is the green brain and this idea that we're all kind of wired uh, to to want certain things, you know, and that generally we are more alike than different. That, that is absolutely true from a kind of genetic and physiological perspective as well as from like a, a kind of... Uh, a perspective of, like, what we want in the world. We want to connect with other people. We want to, you know, and we also want agency. We want to kind of set ourselves apart in the world. But but when it gets to the specifics now, I have to say it's been an extraordinarily painful time for me. Yeah. And I do feel like the differences are in, like, acute, right? They're, they're, they're just, profound, They're more yeah. pronounced than mm-hmm. they've ever been. Yeah. Um, I still believe, though, that one of the most... Powerful ways we can come back together is through food and over food, because uh, no matter what our political affiliation, our gender, our ethnicity, our class, whatever, like we all eat or want to eat. And and if we can if we can really connect through feeding our hungers, um, I think it's still possible to return to each other.
1: Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, um, me too. I really do. <laughs> that's, that's, why I, that's why I come each week. Um, well, Simran, thank you so much. I mean, there's just so much to talk about and obviously I would love to keep this conversation going much longer, but it's it's the time um, where I get kicked out. So why don't you tell everyone like where we can listen to your podcast and read your writing and find your books and just stay in touch.
2: Yeah, you bet. So it's um the podcast is the slowmelt.com and my website, which is where all my writing ends up, and you can find out where I'm doing I'm all over Europe this summer doing a ton of speaking engagements. And here in the US, it's simransethi.com. It's S I M R A N S E T H I.com. Great. And also, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram Mm -hmm. at at simransethi.
1: Perfect. Well, thank you. It it has just been such um, a delicious experience and rich (laughs) and enriching. (laughs) Uh, Just lovely. Likewise. Yeah, thanks. Um, Get some rest, recover from your jet lag, and. Yeah, just everyone, just if, if you haven't read the book yet, it's it's so fascinating and fun and exciting. And it's just like the, you know, the best, most pleasurable way to read about biodiversity <laughs> that you could imagine. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Simran. And thanks all for listening. We'll be back here <laughs> next week, Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m.
0: ever wonder what kind of podcast
1: Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her
0: latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Schulkin, and your host, and the foundation's executive director, as I bring you inside the foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.